But I had a cat's curiosity. I mean, I, I real. I think it was an unwise curiosity. I had a tremendous curiosity, and and because I had such a curiosity about the human mind, I mean, it, it was it was my interest in the human mind that made me curious about psychotropic drugs. I mean. I felt from reading so much Jung that the mind was a tremendous mystery, and I was very interested in his concept of the collective unconscious and, and you know the archetypes. And I again, these were essentially religious strivings that were appearing in me. You know, now now they were appearing in the, in the early '60s. Uh, that shows up in Three Stigmata. By then, I had become an adult convert to the Episcopal Church, and I was becoming overtly, you know, consciously curious about religion. Dickheads, like a pink laser beam of truth beaming straight from San Diego, California to your brain hole. We have taken our choosy. We've got Palmer Eldridge on our shoulder, ready to see us through this uh, discussion of the three stigmata of Palmer Eldridge. I'm David Agronoff, author of Goddamn Killing Machines, which comes out this month. And to my left... Anthony Trevino. Who? Oh, oh no, I don't like doing <laughs> that anymore. You just say my name move on. All right. And uh, running the boards. And I'm Langhorn J. Tweed. And our special guest tonight is author J. David Osborne, who uh, some of you may know as the ed- editor and publisher of Broken River Books. David, introduce yourself. I guess I kind of did. <laughs> oh, that's cool, man. That's that's pretty much. I'm David. I live in El Paso. Uh, I'm a Sagittarius. I <laughs> like reading and going on Twitter um what else about do you me? like going on twitter david i do now i do now <laughs> i've jailbroken twitter for myself where um i found the beauty of muting all certain words so i have huh? trump muted i have the word warren muted i have sanders muted nice everything everything political is muted so i do enjoy it now but yeah i wrote books called um black gum minor storm and the very long titled, uh, By the Time We Leave Here, We'll Be Friends. Which is an excellent book. Yeah, I'm a big fan of your work, so we're super stoked to have you here today. Good it's stuff. actually one of my favorite crime novels, Low Down Death Right Easy. Yeah, I like that one a lot, too. And I have no idea who he is. <laughs> wow. <laughs> we just met. We just met. Real quick, though, David, tell us a little bit about how you kind of got into PKD and your experience with PKD, just so people can get kind of a feel for it. That's an interesting question. I don't know. He kind of feels like he's always been there. Um, so I guess before I was into the books, I did see a lot of the movies like Blade Runner and Minority Report, uh, Scanner Darkly, stuff like that. Somewhere around college, though, um, I was probably just messing around on the Internet and was on a forum, probably. And I think the very first one that I read was Vallis. Yikes. Um, and, and <laughs> you jumped like, into the, the deep end there. I've ever read. So I kind of went back and read more after that. In fact, I was telling you guys a little bit before we started recording that I had thought that I had read the three stigmata of Palmer Eldritch before. I remember very distinctly checking it out from 
the library when I was in freshman in college. And when I picked it up to read it again, though, I remembered almost none of it. So it's either a screen memory or I've done so many hallucinogens between then and now that it's a new book to me. And so I what, what is that? What is that span for you? Is that ten, is that ten years or since you since you believe you read it last? Is when that... I was a freshman in college, that was fifteen years ago. Fifteen, yeah. okay, yeah, that's about um, that might be about the same amount of time since I last read it. Too. Yeah. So uh, we'll, we'll we'll get to three stigmata again here in a little bit. We're gonna do one of our other segments, which is Dick like suggestions. Langhorn, do you want to kick us off? Sure. Guess what it's going to be? Is it another video game? It is. So shocking. <laughs> All right. Give us a video game. All right. So this one is a little more on the weird side. And I don't know if I've talked about this game before, but it's called Rumu. And, mm, never heard of it. And okay. So maybe I haven't, or maybe you guys forgot. Either way, I'm doing it again or for the first time. Rumu is a game where you are a, one of those, uh, self moving, Vacuum cleaners, whatever they're... Roomba? You have Room- not a suggested a self-moving vacuum cleaner video game. I just so let you know now <laughs> you, that I'd remember that. You are a Roomba that uh, gains consciousness and slowly gains consciousness through this other AI that runs the entire household that you're in. And you learn the the secrets of the family and that, that own the house because you never see them and there's a mystery there. And you become uh, paranoid about the the AI that runs the house, like she's hiding stuff from you, and you get to vacuum stuff. <laughs> that's awesome. that's pretty much the game. <laughs> but it is. Can, ama- I, can I interject real fast and say that that reminds me of this new game that came out called Goose Game? Have you all seen Goose Game? I have not. Okay, it's a. It came out like a week ago, and you play a goose. I've heard um, of it. Though. Yeah, where you're like the whole point of the game. It's a puzzle game, but you're supposed to just make life difficult for humans. Yeah, you you like, run around and like squawk stuff. at a guy, right? That's what I've seen. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, sorry to interrupt. That just reminds no, me. That's... Of this game. <laughs> no, no. You're here to to chat, right? <laughs> um, so, what's the name of this game again? One it is it is called Rumu. Rumu. And you're the best part about your little robot vacuum cleaner self is that you love everything. You start the game like fully positive. You're like, I love computer. I love vacuuming. I love everything. By the end, you're like, bitch, you're hiding shit. I know it. <laughs> and uh, it just makes you angry, huh? That's yeah. interesting. All right. So I have two dick-like <laughs> suggestions. Uh, one is for a TV show and one is for a book. Uh, the book is uh, Pax Americana, uh, holding it up for you YouTubers. And it's um, by Kurt Baumeister and from Stocking Horse Press. Uh, fan of the show, uh, friend of the show, James Reich is the publisher editor. And this book is very, it's about a, it takes place in 2034 in a future where George Bush has just finished his fourth term of office. Oh my God. Yeah. And it's, um, yeah. Wait, so- wait, which George Bush? George W. Bush. Okay. And it's a very interesting book about just this weird corporate future. And it's a very, it's a very interesting book to come out at the beginning of the Trump years. And it's very Kurt Vonnegut like, I would say. It's very, um, 
fun to get influenced. And uh, it's one of the coolest books I read this year. It's very funny, uh, very strange. There's also a computer program that it's Dick like suggestion because there's a computer program that's supposed to help you talk to God. And this is kind of changing the tide from this uh, four term religious uh theocracy that's going on under George so W. Bush. Is uh, is Cheney the, the vice president the whole time? Or well, is that even he's part He's about of the... to become president, I think, at the beginning oh. of the book. So yeah, and he's like fully robotic at this point <laughs> in the book. <laughs> but uh Pax Americana, it's very it's very good and it's a debut novel and it's incredibly impressive for a debut novel. And I really appreciate that. And then the other dick-like suggestion that I have is there's an Amazon TV series called Undone starring Bob Odenkirk and Rosanna Salazar from Alita Battle Angel. And it's rotos, it's a rotoscope show. So it's filmed oh, nice. and then it's animated over. It's eight episodes, 23 minutes long. It is so PKD. Uh, but basically Bob Odenkirk plays Rosanna Salazar's father who's been dead for 15 years. And there's this, basically she's in a car accident and then she starts to have visions of her father and finds out that he's traveling through time and he's a physicist and it's really psychedelic and, and out there. And because it's rotoscoped, it does all kinds of really cool and awesome things. And it's on Amazon and eight episodes, 23 minutes. I'm not, super into the to the way the season ended but uh it it's very good and and it's very obviously pkd influenced but more in a um kind of one thing is slightly off nature there's not it's not super sci-fi it's just um okay weird as fuck so i appreciate that uh david or anthony you guys got anything i got nothing david well if you want to sort of a suggestion that's more towards the maybe, I don't know, Gnostic angle of Dickian writing. Totally. Um, I've been reading a book called Meditations on the Tarot, mm. which is a big, thick volume written by an anonymous, I believe, Jesuit priest um, who requested that the book be published after he died. And uh, each chapter of the book is based on one of the kind of major arcana of the tarot. And he sort of uses that to um, explore different questions of life and Gnosticism through a sort of lens of uh, Christian hermeticism, which any kind of hermeticism is sort of right up my alley. (laughs) All that occult shit. But it's, I mean, obviously it's a nonfiction book. I've also read a book recently called The Secret Tradition of the Soul by Patrick Harper, which is also nonfiction and it kind of details sort of the history of humans relationship to the concept of the soul and sort of where we lost that and maybe where we can potentially get that back in a sort of current uh, scientific materialist sort of uh, uh, demiurgical framework. Really? Those, those two uh, were, were very uh, kind of, mystic and occult and uh Dickian in that sense, I suppose. Hmm. Yeah, see that's not any territory we would normally go to, so that's pretty cool. Yeah, that's perfect. Yeah. Yeah. Very cool. Alright, so uh Three Stigmata Palmer Eldridge was released in nineteen sixty five. 
David, what was happening in 1965? Well, it's funny you should ask. So, uh, 1965, just to give you some heads up on what was going on the year this book was released, uh, this was the year that Martin Luther King led the Civil Rights March in Alabama to Selma. This was also the year of the Watts riots, race riots in Mm. Los Angeles. It was Operation Rolling Thunder was launched in Vietnam, not the movie, but the actual Rolling Thunder. Uh... And, yeah, so just to give you a heads up of just how long ago this was, <laughs> those were all things that happened the year this book was wow. released. So, um, but before we get into the writing and publication history specifically of the Three Stigmata of Palmer Eldridge, like many of these early PKD novels, it started as a short story first. And this was with the publication of a story called The Days of Perky Pat. One of the interesting things about The Days of Perky Pat compared to the other short stories that were turned into novels is Days of Perky Pat and Three Stigmata are only a year apart. So a lot of the short stories, like Vulcan's Hammer was eight years later. Right. Dr. White Knight, Dr. Fuchsia. Most most of them were written in 63 or published in 63 and came out much later. Or is it 53? Uh, 53. 53. 53. They were were all published in 53 and and became novels way later. Yeah, because 1953 was the year that he just went bananas on short stories um, before it was uh, A.E. Vote who told him, like, stop with the short stories, kid. Um, (laughs) You're getting nowhere. (laughs) You're getting nowhere with them short stories. Uh, But The Days of Perky Pat um, arrived in April of 1963, so it was about two... Well, it was about a year before he actually wrote Three Stigmata, when he turned it into the SMLA agency. And the original title was Stand By. I don't know. But they... Yikes. Yeah, as always, SMLA changed the title to something better with yep. the Days yeah. of Perky Pat. And that was published in Amazing in December of 1963, so pretty quick turnaround. And... The back cover of the magazine had a Perky Pat drawing on it, so they obviously, uh, you know, really liked it. And we have a quote from Philip K. Dick about the writing of Days of Perky Pat. Well, real quick, though, who here's read the Days of Perky Pat? I wanted to, but I didn't. Um, I read I didn't it in- have time. Osborne? No. Yeah, I, I didn't. I flaked on it and didn't read it. Okay, I read it on Friday, and I, I had realized that I had read it before. Doesn't it take place after... Stigmata, or is no, it no, it of... has nothing to do with three stigmata. It's a completely separate story. The only thing that's similar to it is that it it, ha- it has Perky Pat. It has it. Perky Pat, and Perky Pat is more of it's just the the whole like people being obsessed with the dolls and living as Perky Pat kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Okay, and so that's specifically what it what it's about. It's not even that like science fictiony, really. It's I did, yeah, I definitely uh, didn't read it as closely as I, I did mostly skim it because I realized when I started reading it that I had read it before. Um, so I'm not going to say that my analysis of it is like super great. Okay. Cause so Days of Perky Pat, we have a quote from PKD about the writing of it. Mm. <clears throat> Dick says, the days of Perky Pat came to me in one lightning swift flash when I saw my children playing with Barbie dolls. Obviously, these anatomically super-developed dolls were not intended for the use of children, or more accurately, should not have been. Barbie and Ken consisted of two adults in miniature. 
The idea was that the purchase of countless new clothes for these dolls was necessary if Barbie and Ken were to live in the style to which they were accustomed. I had visions of Barbie coming into my room at night and saying, I need a mink coat, or even worse, hey big fellow, want to take a drive to Vegas in my Jaguar XKE? I was afraid my wife would find me and Barbie together and my, my, uh, and my wife would shoot me. Yeah. It's a very specific fear. <laughs> yeah. Um, but, uh, so yeah, he was obviously thinking about those things. And it's, you know, the whole Barbie doll thing, I think, is much more of a concept in the days of Perky Pat than it is. So when, when, uh, when did Barbie come out or, well, is it, was it long before that or is this just Dick discovering Barbie dolls because he has kids? I'm not up on my Barbie doll history. Yeah. I don't, <laughs> I didn't think any of us would be, but I thought it was worth asking. No, I think. Barbie dolls started kind of in the 50s, I believe. Okay. And uh, so I think it was more like he was just seeing his children and it was more... I I think the only relevance they have in Three Stigmata is that there's still these kind of lives that you aspire to do. Yeah, well, they're the 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 Barbie and Ken in the story. If you want a cool life, you gotta be like this doll. Mm -hmm. But obviously, no dick. (laughs) Well, there is that. Um, I would also say that the... The dolls in particular mm-hmm. and the people going into the lives of the dolls actually fractally works with, not to jump too far ahead. No, go ahead, with, man. With what happens towards the end with the Palmer Eldritch entity. Right. Inhabiting the lives of different people and sort of coming out through them. It's probably supposed to be a parallel there, right? Yeah. Yeah, that would make sense. I agree with that. Yeah, yeah. And I think uh, the Days of Perky Pad does inform Three Stigmata. And you can definitely see where he basically thought, oh, this was a cool idea I kind of worked on, and I'd like to explore it a little bit more. And I actually appreciate that PKD, you know, some people would say it's recycling, but I think that it's cool that he expands on some of these ideas. But there's a ton of writers out there that do that, that'll take a short story and turn it into a whole novel. Yeah, yeah, that's Yeah, but I like that he's taking ideas from these short stories specifically and... Not that he's expanding the short story into this short story becoming the same story as a novel. I like that he's taking certain ideas and e- expanding them into other ideas. If sure. You see what I mean? So, Except when he does it with, like, Dr. Futurity. God, I hated that book. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, yeah, and, and I think he, he also goes on to say, and I'm, I'm not – we don't have to read the full quote, but he does talk about how he was renting – that he wrote both the short story and the novel when he was renting his $15 hovel. Mm-hmm. Um, and a large part of the inspiration for writing Three Stigmata was that he was spending so much time in this, like, shitty hovel that he was renting for 15 bucks that the idea of of the layouts and the fantasy world that you're getting out of came out of just the idea that he was writing in this kind of crappy condition. For for whatever reason, Anne didn't want him writing in the house. <laughs> <laughs> okay, th- I, love, yeah. I love that idea, dude, of her just coming in and being like, "Oh no, no, sir, <laughs> yeah. we yeah. we are not writing in the house again." Go to the <laughs> go to the shack. Go to the shack. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and, and and thankfully he did that because uh, writing to the shack is when he got to see the big face of God staring at yeah, him right? while he was walking. And if he didn't have that walk to the shack, we wouldn't have the demonic god face um, encouraging him to, to write. So um, so anyways, the uh, to 
That's all I have to say about Days of Perky Pat. I really don't have much to say about that. This book was written after the book he wrote before it was Crack in Space. And okay. he wrote Three Stigmata directly before writing The Penultimate Truth, which was definitely really? one where he took old short stories and uh, recycled them. And so it's funny because a lot of times people, when they look at the, the way authors progress, they just think, oh, he wrote this book and then... Or this book came out, and then this book was a huge leap. But we know because of how we see that he writes them all completely out of order for how they're published. It's funny that you know Three Stigmata is one that that I think we all agree is is next level for PKD. And then he went and wrote Penultimate Truth, which is one that n- none of us were like super excited about. Yeah, you know, um, I mean, I don't hate Penultimate Truth, but it's definitely. A step down from three stigmata. It's certainly not the ultimate truth. <laughs> it's the penultimate. Well, that was the sequel that he wrote, the ultimate yeah, truth. Yeah, right. That never got published. <laughs> right. The unpublished ultimate truth. Now, it is, it is, there is some debate over exactly when PKD wrote this one. We believe that he could have written parts of it in 1963. But we do know that the completion date was March 18th, 1964. Okay. Because that is the day that he, he, he shot off a letter to his agents telling them that it was done and it'd be coming soon. So that is the first, like, kind of proof that we have that he finished it. So we think he finished it in 1964. Well, well yeah, that makes sense with the, uh, the amount of divorce stuff in it and, you know, all those, uh, uh, all I mean, the wife, but to, to all the wife fair, issues. There's always a wife issue. <laughs> but uh, but in these oh. in these last couple of books, it's been really prominent. It's not nearly as prominent as Clans of the Alphane Moon, though. Oh uh, Every fucking book is a disgruntled <laughs> husband. <laughs> there is always a disgruntled husband. Um, so this book was, strangely enough, not published by Ace. Don Wilhelm had nothing to do with what? the editing of this book. Because it was published originally by Doubleday. And this was one of the first... Well, it wasn't one of the first, because I think Time Out of Joint was his first hardcover. But yeah. this is an early hardcover for a hardcover release. And one of the cool things is, this is the time where even still Robert Heinlein was serializing novels. Even Moon is a Harsh Mistress in 66 was serialized through magazines before anyone would publish it as a hardcover. So the fact that it came out straight in a hardcover is really cool. And one of the things that is a key to its success is that it was a part of Doubleday's Science Fiction Book Club editions. So those went automatically to subscribers. So this automatically got in the hands of lots of people, which is kind of funny if you think about it. If you're a member of the Science Fiction Book Club and you get this, like, super fucking drug book. Yeah, totally (laughs) whacked out. Um, (laughs) drug and religion book. (laughs) Yeah. And so the book was out for a couple months in a straight hardcover selling on its own. But January of 65 is when it came out in the book club. And it also was one of the first books that PKD sold as a UK, UK edition almost right away. And so, and this was based basically on the science fiction book club edition of The Man in the High Castle did so well and was so popular that that Doubleday really was able to sell it to the book club or, or to move it into the book club edition really fast. And But here's the interesting thing. The advance for the book club was only $2,000, which makes it 
about the same that he was getting paid by Ace. So PKD right. was pretty stoked to get a hardcover uh, because that was a status thing. But, but it didn't lead to money. It didn't lead to more money. And we have an interesting quote from him that I think is really fun and really sets the table for what was going on in PKD's life there. Uh, Anthony? I wasn't able to register my car for 65, and the highway patrol gave me two citations, which if I can't pay, as well as registering my car and fixing the muffler, I'm going to be jailed on April 7th. <laughs> but I can't see borrowing anymore, even though the advance from you is down now to 750. What I'm holding out for is the Jonathan Cape money from the UK. Do you think it'll be coming through soon? I think that good news about that would really cheer me up. That is really quite a lot of money when you think about it. <laughs> and he talks about the JC, the Jonathan Cape money, several times. Um, I did like I have a couple quotes here from that, but there was even more. <laughs> like he was really focused on getting that UK money. Really? Um, well, he was going to go to jail, <laughs> <laughs> right? And that there's another one where he says. If something extremely good happens, you can reach me by phone again, but not my own since the, since the bell took it away. <laughs> so he didn't have his phone for them to communicate with him. And that's one of the reasons. So what was he doing? Like a pay phone thing or? Well, no, oh, that's what, bell. that's one of the reasons why there's so many quotes about three stigmata is because he wasn't able to call anyone. <laughs> really? Uh, so, so he wrote letters. So he wrote a bunch okay, of letters. Okay. <laughs> That's one of the reasons. Why, like, you think I have a lot of quotes here about Three Sigmata? There's more. There's right. a lot more of there's of all these books, like Clan of the Alphane Moon. Like, I could only find two quotes really from him talking about it. But Three Sigmata, there's a ton, partially because his phone was. He out. didn't have a phone, <laughs> and he was sending all these letters, like, "Hey," um, and so there were also just like a lot. Of, there's. Uh, editorial notes that would have ge generally at the time been done over the phone, uh, right? Back and forth about where where they were going, and so isolation was a huge part of what inspired him. So we have a quote: "Isolation generated the novel, and yearning generated the story." In the novel, a mixture of the fear of being abandoned and the fantasy of the beautiful woman who waits for you somewhere, but God only knows where. I have to still figure it out, but if you're sitting alone day after day at your typewriter, turning out one story after another and having no one to talk to, no one to be with, and yet pro forma having a wife and four daughters from whose house you have been expelled, banished to a little single-walled shack that is so cold in winter that literally the ink would freeze in my typewriter ribbon, well, you're going to write about iron slot-eyed faces and warm young women. <laughs> PKD so wow. salty. <laughs> Yikes. That's uh, good stuff. Yeah. Um, so I, I really like the idea that a lot of this, it really puts this novel into context for me that he was really having a rough time I, writing this book <laughs> in the hovel and not enjoying himself in the hovel. And I just, I think that puts a lot of context for the, the whole idea of the, um, Candy and uh, what what it does. But uh, he gets more into what's going on and the concept of the ideas. And the next one, this this is also from a letter to one of his editors at Doubleday. And this is the one where he actually gets into the mystical experience of it. And it's key to, to know that he was very defensive about this book being written on drugs. Yeah. He, he did not want people to think this was written on drugs. Partially because of the Harlan Ellison thing where um, 
Harlan Ellison wrote the introduction to his story in Dangerous Visions and was like, whoa, PKD is way fucked up, you know? <laughs> Pretty like, much. Yeah. And so That's PKD... a really good Harlan Ellison impression. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so PKD, like, really definitely wanted to walk that back. But I think this next quote is really good about the whole... Pause for a second. Will you want me to read this whole fucking thing? I think you should read the whole fucking thing. All right, strap in, everybody. (laughs) (laughs) The Palmer Eldritch novel came out of an actual mystical experience, lasting almost a month in which I saw the face of evil. Hovering over the landscape and the three stigmata were aspects of him that I saw. I mean, objectively, literally. In particular, the slotted, empty eyes. It was a true trip before I had seen any LSD, much less taken any. In an effort to help myself, I became a convert to the Anglo-Catholic Church. But their teachings do not include that of a real, active, evil power who has control, or near control, of the earth we live on. I even took the right of uh, unction, but it didn't help, and I wandered away from the church. The point is this. If a person's idios cosmos begins to break down, he is exposed to the archetypal or transcendental force of the koinos cosmos. And if the time comes that he lives only in the koinos cosmos, he is exposed to powers too great for him to handle. This part of the theory is opposite to Jung's theory that each of us needs subjective constructs, such as space and time, as a framework structuring reality. In other words, we must have our idios cosmos to stay sane. Reality has to filter through, carefully controlled by the mechanisms by which our brains operate. We can't handle it directly, and I think that this was what was occurring when I saw Palmer Eldritch lingering, day after day, over the horizon. Something should have stood between me and it. In the Anglo-Catholic Church wasn't enough. Neither was psychiatry, needless to say. My first LSD experience, by the way, confirmed my vision of Palmer Eldritch. I found myself in the hell world, and it took almost 2,000, subjective, years for me to crawl up out of it. Okay. <laughs> There's a lot to break down there. There is, but I'm interested in what Osborne thinks about that. About, about the quote? Yeah. There's a lot of stuff in there that's really interesting to me. There's um, a little bit of sort of... I think you would call it maybe Kantian uh, transcendentalism there with like the kind of separation between the objective and the subjective and there being this sort of membrane that you can't pierce. It's interesting for him that the membrane seems to exist to actually protect um, the psyche of the observer, right? Mm-hmm. Like the idea of creating sort of your own little worlds that are separate from objective reality to him seems to be a, um, an important function, I guess, of sort of the human brain, which is which is interesting because you see that in in his writing, you see a lot of um, people trying to constantly, not just in this book, right, but constantly trying to to sort of ground themselves in like what is real and and what in this subjective experience that I'm experiencing that I'm living in, like what of it is real and like kind of it almost seems like sometimes the objective like leaks in right whether it's through mystical experiences or these sort of lsd uh, uh trips sounds like he had a pretty bad trip <laughs> yeah so, 2000 the, the 2000 year thing um i wrote on twitter after i finished the book that a lot of these trips actually reminded me more of um salvia which yeah. is awful it's it is a oh, terrible really? terrible thing it's also i think still completely legal yeah we used to buy it, it at smoke shops yeah. yeah, and so 
um, if you ever want to kind of freak yourself out. So when I did Salvia, I was in high school and same. <laughs> yeah, I went to, yeah. this was before anything else. It was just, I had this buddy, Danny, yeah. who, who had his own apartment, which was tight. And, you know, he had sublime posters up all over the wall. Yeah, as you, you know, do. Yeah. Incense burning. <laughs> yeah, dude, we're like the same age. So, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So he, uh, like we went in and I remember looking at this, po- this black lay poster of sublime mm-hmm. and, uh, was, you smoke the salvia and it, it comes on and I was in a space, um, between space. Okay. So I was sitting on a couch and the couch cushion, I was sort of like both in this expanse of the space between couch cushions. Uh, and I was there forever. Right. For just a very long time, even though Salvia yeah. only lasts a, a few minutes, but uh, yeah, but it feels like forever. In, yeah, in, in yeah. Palmer Eldritch, you know, there's the bit where it's like, I want to become a rock, so I can spend a million years as a rock, or I want to become right. this plaque, right? Yeah. Um, and that, if if you ever go on Arrowhead, which is a treasure trove of just horrific experiences of people, you know, turning themselves into test rats with all sorts of hallucinogenics. But salvia very often is like, I was a plank of wood for a thousand years. Wow. It's, it's, just, <laughs> it's just awful. And that kind of goes into, um, I, I tend to think that it was salvia in particular. Um, it is sort of like a, a sacred indigenous plant. And I think that the reason why uh, specifically white people, but white people who just fuck with it to have a good time, always have a bad time, <laughs> is that I think that these sort of plant uh, entities have a tea loss to them, like have an objective with what they're trying to do, whether that's ayahuasca or right. mushrooms or salvia. And I think that when you're just like, oh, we smoke it to, to party, salvia is like, no, you absolutely are not, bitch. We're going to have a <laughs> yeah. bad time. So that's, those are some of the thoughts that I have from that quote. Yeah, and um, we have another quote where he specifically talks about LSD, and it it was from an interview, and specifically the interviewer asks him, asks him <laughs> um, about LSD and how it, what effect it has on his writing. You're known as one of the first authors to experiment with LSD. What effect has it had on your writing? I don't know of any. It's always possible that it's had an effect. I don't know about. Take my novel Three Stigmata, which deals with a tremendous bad acid trip. I wrote that before I'd ever seen LSD. I wrote that from just reading a description of the discovery of it and the kind of sure. effect it had. So if, yeah. so if that, which is my major novel of hallucinogenic kind, came without my ever know, having taken LSD, then I would say even my work following LSD, which had hallucinations in it, could have easily been written without taking acid. Yeah, that is absolute bullshit. <laughs> yeah, he's lying, I think. I think he's taking LSD at this point, but that's just me. Because, you know, PKD, you can't trust any fucking thing he says. Yeah, and when, 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 I, when, when I did the interview with his ex-wife, she mentioned that he had a tendency to, like, fabricate a lot of, like, the stories. Right. But I do think what's interesting about that quote is that, uh, you know, he's definitely... He sees this book as about a a bad trip, yeah. right? Like he's describing it as as, as a bad trip, and uh, that was one of the things that I thought was really cool about that quote. This quote that he has, where he's talking about the themes of absolute evil, is is really important. In my novel, The In Three Stigmata, novel. which is a study of absolute evil, the protagonist, after his encounter with Eldritch, returns to Earth and dictates a memo. This little section appears ahead of the text of the novel. 
It is the novel, actually, this paragraph. The rest is a sort of post-mortem, or rather a flashback in which all that came to produce the one-paragraph book is presented. 75,000 words, which I labored over many months, merely explains, is merely there to provide background to the one small statement in the book that matters. It is, by the way, missing from the German edition. This statement is, for me, my credo, not so much in God, either a good God or a bad God, or both, but in ourselves. It goes as follows, and this is all I actually have to say, or want to ever say. I mean, after all, you have to consider we're only made of dust. That's admittedly not much to go on. We shouldn't forget that. But even considering, I mean, it's a b sort of bad beginning. We're not doing too bad. So I personally have faith that even in this lousy situation, we're faced with, we can make it. You get me? That, to him, is supposed to be the whole thing. <laughs> All right. Yeah, which is interesting thing for a, no for a novelist to say, like, the whole book is just... For this one statement? Yeah, I'm backing up this one statement. <laughs> he talks a little bit... There, there are more quotes that you can find out there where he's talking about... He knows how weird and insane this book is. <laughs> right? He understands that. He says, in fact, he says, God, it's a weird book. I think, if anything, I write to be retained within the cultural flow that the Three Stigmata of Palmer Eldridge stands a very good chance. It's, hmm. it's strange. I don't think it's as... It wasn't as difficult for me to follow as when I first read Naked Lunch, though. Yeah. Interesting. I, that's a, Well, that's, my experience... That's a tough... Uh, that's a really tough book to understand if you don't, if you're not deeply ingrained in drug culture, Naked Lunch wouldn't make any sense. Mm -hmm. yeah. Or at least it wouldn't make as much sense, I guess. And here's the interesting thing is we've all, this is all of our second time reading it, except for maybe JDO, but, but here's the thing. For me, I had the Mulholland Drive experience reading this book. Whereas the first time I saw Mulholland Drive, I was like, what? <laughs> What the fuck just happened? I have no idea. And right. Then, and then, and then the second time I watched Mulholland Drive, I was like, "Oh yeah, it makes perfect sense. I totally get what's going on." Yeah. And that was exactly my experience. The first time I read Three Stigmata fifteen years ago, I I knew there was drugs. That was involved. my experience with the with the Holy Mountain. Because the, the first time I read it, I was like, I knew there were drugs. There were people on Mars. There was this guy who went to Proxima and he came back and he had a really high opinion of himself. Uh, right. But then, but I didn't really fully, I don't think I, I, I processed that it was weird, but I didn't process, I didn't fully get the plot. Now this time, the plot was very clear to me mm -hmm. and it didn't seem yeah. as weird to me. Yeah. Well, like the first time I read it, I had a hard time figuring out what was a hallucination and what wasn't. And well, I think time, you're supposed to. This time I can easily kind of figure it out as it goes along. Yeah, and, and there's, there is a quote in one, in one of the letters where he's talking to, I'll just read it. Yeah, go ahead. It's really hard to find. Yeah, um, where he's, he's talking about the reaction of the book, and he said, in England, some reviewers described it as blasphemy. Terry Carr, who is my agent at Scott Meredith at the time, told me later, that novel is crazy. <laughs> Although subsequent to it, that he reversed his opinion. Some reviewers found it a profound novel. I find it frightening. I was unable to proofread the galleys myself because the novel frightened me so. It's a dark journey into the mystical and supernatural and absolutely evil as I understood it at the time. So hmm. he didn't even want to reread re it. Like, he was really fucking freaked out by this book. Which, Interesting. You know. May or may not be true. May or may, may <laughs> not be true. But 
I do know he's not the only author that says this. I mean, Stephen King famously was like threw away Pet Cemetery because he said that he couldn't handle it, right? Because of all the fatherhood stuff, and you know, I, I think this. I don't know. I personally haven't had a book where, that I've written where I I've had short stories where I didn't really like reading them again, but I've never had a novel. That yeah, I, I haven't. Yeah. Osborne. What's what's the question? Have I had a novel that I didn't want to reread? Yeah. Um, yeah, no, all of them, dude. <laughs> <laughs> but, but, but yeah. not, not, not for like proofreading. Yeah, not for any, any. Like, no, I, I think self-conscious David, purpose, I, but I, for an emotional. Yeah, reaction. So the the type, king thing is of, that there was just too much dark shit about fatherhood to where it made him uncomfortable and he didn't want to revisit it. But I've never physically like looked at anything I've written and been like, ugh, I feel too emotionally connected to it. And now I've written a lot of crappy poetry yeah, that i same. didn't want to go back to. yeah same but other than that like stories and stuff like that I'd, yeah i'm fine with no i uh no and anything that i've written I, I i'm haven't been averse to going back and reading it because it's just too much however i will say i get where dick is coming from with this particular book because if i had written this book i i don't think i would want to go back and read it and i kind of don't know if I'll ever read it again hmm. because of how sort of like unpleasant a trip is. I think it's, I th- it's, it's from the Dick books that I've read. It's probably my favorite, but um, I tend to really enjoy books that are really kind of taxing and sort of going through this book. Right. There are certain points where I had to like stop and get up and, you know, get some water or whatever, because I was just like, this is uncomfortable. Like, there's something very kind of, there is a sort of spiritually slimy mm-hmm. about everything yeah. that's going on. Yeah. With all of the, you know, penetrations of this sort of evil God into reality and, and the way, and the, the absolutely brilliant. And this is why I would not believe that he hadn't done LSD at this point, but it's just such an accurate representation of what trips are like. Yeah. That I, I don't know how he could have, known this or well yeah he, how could he yeah, understand the time it. frame mm-hmm. itself i mean alone just understanding how time <laughs> works differently when mm-hmm. when you take hallucin- hallucinogens and how you, you you can drift off into other worlds for what seems like forever and you know it, it wouldn't make sense for someone that was absolutely straight mm-hmm. to yeah, to understand yeah, that I, didn't get that before reading this book. So <laughs> as someone who's never done acid. So. Right. Well, I will say David, that it, since you have read this book, I mean, I, I can say that's, that's pretty much what it's like. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, it's pretty close. <laughs> right. Um, we have a quote where he talks about the connection to his pink laser beam instance, uh, incident. I recall what I saw when I awakened. I saw God smiling in the sunlight of day. Once, during the years of the terrible separation, I saw Palmer Eldritch in the sun. I saw God backward, but sure enough, in the daytime sun. At high noon, and knew him to be a god. The three stigmata, if read properly, reversed, contains many clues as to the nature of God and to our relationship with him. I was motivated to flee, then, fearing what I saw. So vast was the breach, then. It was definitely a true vision of God, but grown, to my blind sight, terrible. It was the beginning of my seeing that I could see God at all in the sun. Showed that I was not entirely blind, but rather deranged. My three to seventy-four experiences are an outgrowth of my Palmer Eldritch experience. That's over... March seventy-four. Oh, sorry. 
Nice. <laughs> Sorry. My Palmer Eldritch experience over 10 years earlier. Yeah, and so, um, I, this is, I think, an incredible quote to be able to, to see. This was from an interview that he did in the 70s, late 70s. But, um, I like this idea that he's saying that if you read it, you'll read it backwards. You'll kind of get it backwards. I don't know if anybody has any thoughts on him saying that, but I thought that was... I didn't realize I had to read it like I was reading manga. <laughs> or uh, the Torah. Or the... Uh, <laughs> uh, think sometimes... I can, I can see that. I think I mean, sometimes people focus... That'd be on... an interesting adaptation, though. Mm-hmm. Yeah. As a graphic novel, to do it backward. Yeah. That would be interesting. Yeah. Well, it's just a really cool thing, too, to think, because I think a lot of people miss, like, the whole God part because they're just focused on, whoa, it's a bad trip, dude. But inside the bad trip is Palmer Eldridge, you know, taking over all these people, invading, basically. Well, he kind of, I mean, he plows that into you in the end of the book with, the like, the last 15 pages where it's like, it's God, get it? It's God. And it's an alien, but it's also God. Remember, it's God. So, I don't know if I should save this question for later when we're just talking about the book, but I don't know if I feel like Palmer Eldritch is necessarily the embodiment of evil. Well, he certainly makes it sound like he thinks so. Well, I know Dick does. Yeah. But. <laughs> I agree with Anthony. Yeah. It, it, it's sort of an embodiment of change and, and not for the individual. Yeah. So it, it's sort of a, a collectivism that mm-hmm. that happens. Yeah. If they're all going to be the same entity, then there has to be sort of a a collective. And and you can imagine to a a, a 1950s 60s white male sort of perspective that would be sort of antithetical to everything you believe and therefore evil. Right. Would it it's an alien doing what it does. I don't know if right. there's malicious intent behind it. It's just trying to create this more collectivism. Well, like in... like like he says, it, it's a breeding process. Yeah. So I don't so... I don't know. Just a thought. I... Yeah. And then the last quote that we have is specifically where he talks about the Gnostic message, and then sure. All right. So the Gnostic message in my writing can be seen when we realize that it is a Gnostic revelation that this world is a bungled counterfeit of the celestial world. Especially time as a poor counterfeit of eternity. And Palmer Eldritch equals is the Gnostic Demiurge creator, spinning out evil in false worlds to feed his drive for power. In Stigmata, the evil quality of the creator is expressed. In Man, Leo Bolero pitted against the false evil cosmos in its evil creator. A very cosmic novel. Hmm. That's interesting, and I love that because I also read Eldritch completely as a demiurge. Mm-hmm. However, mm-hmm. in a lot of Gnostic theology, the demiurge is depicted as being blind, right? Mm-hmm. So it's it's very important to think about the demiurge in terms of it not understanding that it's not God, okay? Mm-hmm. So the, the God above God sort of made everything, including this demiurge, which he sort of like put in charge of, you know, creating this sort of matrix-like world of illusions. But where I think maybe Dick is very kind of moralistic about it in a very interesting kind of way, because I don't think Gnostics would necessarily... You want to get past the demiurge and you want to get to the God above God, right? But to put the word evil on it is maybe a little... Because everything sort of flows from that, good things and bad things. 
And if you think in Palmer Eldridge specifically about the scene where Barney's having his really bad trip mm-hmm. um, and he goes to Emily and Richard's apartment with the intent of getting her back. And she very clearly wants nothing to do with him, says, no, no, thank you. Um, and then Eldritch becomes her new husband and says, look, dude, you might have to do this a hundred times, but if you keep trying, you can make this work. Right. So in that sense, Eldritch is trying to help him. Right. Yeah. Like mm-hmm. he's, he doesn't necessarily have a nefarious or evil plan. So there's a, right. there's an ambiguity to his morals and motives that I think is more interesting than Dick is making it out to be in that quote. Hmm. I'd agree with that. Yeah. All right. So we're done with the quotes. You know what that means? It's time for no. the. Well, that was a hard. That was a hard shift, David. <laughs> hard shift. Wow. Story. Story. Breakdown. Story. Breakdown. Lang <laughs> <laughs> Oh, that was it. Yeah, wow, we, we, that was we, a hell of an intro. Oh, wait, we're yeah. dialing it back this time. We're uh, dialing I guess, it back. I didn't I do my Danny Filth cry this time. Right? <laughs> All right, Langhorn. All right, welcome to the Thunderdome. <laughs> what? All right, this is... Uh, sorry about that. This is The Three Stigmata of Palmer Eldritch by Philip K. Dick, a, a novel. All right, so we start with a guy named Barney Mayerson. Who is banging his assistant, but doesn't quite remember it. He's banging in his assistant. He's the, uh, the head of New York, uh, pre-fash fucking precog guy. And that's all you really need to know about him for now. He's a precog. And then, uh, right. we meet Richard Nat, who's the douchey new husband of Barney's ex-wife. And that's pretty much all you need to know there. And then we meet Leo, who is pretty much the main character. Uh, Leo is a, an, a supposedly evolved, Leo Bolero is supposedly an evolved human being, evolved through medical, uh, medical stuff. And he doesn't seem very evolved because he seems pretty bro-like. He's always <laughs> doing stuff like, Oh, hey, uh, I'm gonna go see this guy and do a thing about a thing. He's mo- he's more like the uh, the guy in um, what's that what's that TV show with the uh, with the gangsters? Sopranos. Sopranos. He's more like a character out of Weird. Sopranos than anything else. And so Leo finds out that Palmer Eldritch has crashed and is being held in a hospital on some faraway. I, I think it's Titan. Some, some fucking moon. He's on Ganymede. Yeah, sure. That one too. And so he is, he says to himself, I gotta go find this guy and then I gotta figure out what he's doing because I sell drugs and I don't need anybody else selling drugs but me. And then <laughs> so he gets Barney's assistant slash mistress to come and give him some precog ideas of what's going on. And she says, you're gonna kill that guy. And Leo says, I'm not going to kill that guy, or maybe I will. I don't give a fuck. I'm going to go see him. I'm evolved. <laughs> and then so he he does that. That's something they never really explore. No, that, the whole evolved thing is useless. Yeah. Except for well, this part coming up. 
So Leo does all that stuff. Uh, we still don't care about Barney at this point. Barney's sort of like, I'm a sad sack for no reason. And, and I love my ex-wife for really no reason that you're going to find out about ever. <laughs> uh, so then, uh, Richard Nat goes and he's like, Hey, can I, can I sell your ex-wife stuff to you? And Barney says, no, fuck, get, get out. And so then it, it doesn't happen. And then Nat, uh, finds, uh, ends up in this meeting God, on a street this. with some dude, sells it to, to Palmer Eldritch's people, blah, blah, blah. They get rich and immediately he's like, we, we have to evolve. And the dead weight that is Emily Nat, uh, says, no, I don't want to. Okay, I'll do that. And so they, they go and try to get evolved. And Nat, uh, does evolve. And in, in one of my favorite parts, like makes up for his entire shitty personality by realizing that he's a shitty person once he evolves. It was pretty good. And that's the end of their story. Who oh, cares yeah, about them anymore? Characters. They just never. Nope. Never, no never need for you anymore. You did your one thing. Yeah. Get the fuck out. All right. So anyway, Palmer Eldritch is supposedly this badass dude that knows all the stuff about everything. He's a super industrialist. He's like one of those um, railroad tycoons back in the uh, 1800s. The big cigar and, and his enemy is Leo, the other guy with the big cigar. And they're just comparing cigars all over the place. And what is the cigar metaphor for their dicks, Larry? No, no, no. It's a yeah. Oh wait, did you say dicks? <laughs> I did. Yes, yes, dicks. <laughs> so anyway, uh, Leo comes up with this plan. He's going to go get caught by Palmer Eldritch because that's going to help him in some way because he's evolved and he's really on top of things. So he he gets kidnapped by Palmer, ends up in this alternate reality sort of hallucination world that Palmer has created through his new drug, which is no, which is choosy and not the previous drug, <laughs> candy, who such would, a passe drug. Who would take candy now? Right. And so Leo goes through this whole ordeal with a little girl. And a suitcase and a killer squirrel. And <laughs> then he, he takes a staircase out of it, but he doesn't get out of it. Kind of feels like he never gets out of it. And it's kind of true. No one ever gets out of this thing once they do the choosey. And then we're, we're going along fine with Leo. We kind of love this story that's happening. And then all of a sudden we're back with Barney because Leo's like, I got to fire you, Barney, because you didn't come and save me. And Barney's like, yeah, I'm a, I'm a sad sack. I should totally be fired. He kicks a rock and walks down the street and says, I should kill myself or get my ex-wife back or some other shit or, or I'll, I'll join Palmer Eldritch or I'll fucking, uh, or I'll move to Mars. I don't care. Nothing matters. And yeah, nothing really matters with this guy. He is such a pain in my ass. <laughs> Anyway, so we follow Barney. He goes to Mars, meets some hot little piece of flesh, does some Super Christian, does some uh, some candy, or almost does some candy. Doesn't like it. Bangs the hot little piece of flesh. 
has a weird meeting, blah, 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 in the middle of the night with some DJ no one cares about ever again. Uh, and then Palmer Eldritch is in his front yard and he's like, hey, I got drugs for you. You like that, don't you? And so then they get into a fight. He ends up taking the drug. He has this totally bad trip. And Palmer Eldritch turns out to be an alien slash uh, super industrialist, but really more of an alien. And he's trying to make everyone become him, but not really become him, but sort of an out and what what do you call it? An outstretched version of him, sort of a sort of a a, a progeny. And uh, then Leo goes and talks to Barney, and Barney's like, I'm not going to help you do your thing. And Leo says, well, then I'm going to kill fucking dude and make everything better again. And then he eventually kills dude. They talk about God for a while and end of book. (laughs) (laughs) End of book. End of book. Okay. All right, so... Good, um, good. I nailed all the points. (laughs) You nailed it. Well, I think we skipped some stuff. But well, good. We, we, we otherwise, if I covered it all, what are we doing here? <laughs> That's I'm right. Just fucking with you. All right. So yeah, the three step model of Palmer Eldridge is really fucking good. I know we're not getting into judgments yet, but this is definitely one that we were all looking forward to. We all really like this book. Every and, and like we've said in past uh, past episodes, this is the reason this show exists. Yeah, pretty is much. that Anthony really loved this book when he first read it, and and decided that we needed to do a Dickheads podcast. Well, and I made a joke on the internet. Uh, on the Dickheads it also podcast started, <laughs> not as a joke, like with everything that ends up being serious in my life, it was a joke first. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> but I I think for us, we're we're all fans of this book. But, oh yeah, but we wanted to to learn uh, more about PKD, and I think. Having now read the first 10 years of his output, because that's where we're at now. Wow. Is 10 years, which, by the way, I think we should do a first 10 years ranking soon episode. But this, this is the 10 year mark since Solar Lottery. So we've seen a lot of progression. And for us, I don't know about you guys, but I feel it's not only that I read this book for a second time, but it's that I've read everything that he, all the novels he's written kind of the coding and the language is so much more obvious to me. So specifically, well, I was going to say earlier that it, my main problem when I first read this book, and I think this was the first one I read, uh, when I, when I was in my college years, other than, than reading, uh, Android. cheap. Yeah. yeah. And, and it was the, what, what bogged me down was all the con app stuff, the precog stuff, the, just the the language that he used that I didn't recognize and I had to figure out as I went along. But this time around, since we've read everything prior to it, I know all those words. That he uses that are just PKD words. Yeah, that are like, PKD, you know. Like precog and conat. Autofact. Yeah. Autofact and, yeah. All those things are now recognizable to me, so I don't have to worry that I'm missing anything. Yeah, and that, that's interesting to note because... And I definitely, you know, before we kind of break it down with with um, David, I just wanted to say that specifically I had a very different experience reading this because of having read the first 10 years. Yeah. And and I think 
that, yeah, it definitely made it an easier read in that sense. And uh, I'm super stoked on it. Uh, this is definitely one of the first, I think, that I, that, that, well, no, I think time, well, there are other ones that I thought of were a masterpiece, but I put this up there with Eye in the Sky is, is ones that I really feel like he, he had a concept he was going for and he got it. And it's really interesting to think about him, uh, because the book that he wrote after this was The Penultimate Truth, and that's a book that he hobbled together for Don Wolheim, that he was really, it's, it's so interesting that he went from a hardcover release where he, just really got everything that he wanted to get across to a book where he was cobbling together old short stories and kind of like trying to please Don Wolheim just like he was in, in, in the early days. And that's interesting to me, but specifically let's get into Well, like he said, he was trying to, you know, support uh, now a child and soon to be ex-wife and, and all those, all those things he had to make the money. So, right. So he could he could do a book like this, but then he had to come up with something else to pay the bills. Now, um, something early on that I want to talk about, uh, get everybody's thoughts on, is the idea that going to Mars is a draft. It's it, and I think the whole draft notice part of it is really important because in the early years, uh, the frontier was always looked upon in in Dick's work as this awesome thing that at the end of the book, when we're all happily ever after, we're going to, we're going to ride off into the sunset to the frontier <laughs> and we're going to be happy colonists. And between Martian time slip yeah. and, and this book, I think he's realized, like, I think the science fiction G whiz of it has gone away and he's saying like, Hey, it would actually suck ass to live on Mars. Yeah. Uh, space is hard as NASA always says. And living on Mars would be a really rough and, tumble life. So I think there's a huge shift here in the sense that that once the draft notice becomes a part of it, that that's just an early shift from what we saw in early PKD. Um, but I don't know if anybody else has any feelings on that. I just, that just to me, that was like, well, I would, I would want to know if there, I don't think there was a draft in, in 64 or 63, right? Not yet for Vietnam. It, It wasn't until 67, 68. I believe Something so, like but, but it certainly there was a draft during World War II and, and I believe. In I other parts of his life, he would yeah. have. Yeah. Yeah. And, and just, I think service like to the military was just, just more a thing back then. Right. Um, which, you know, it, it was what it was. For me, this is interesting too, because this is a cli-fi novel. And I, it, it's funny because recently I kept saying to people like, well, wouldn't it be interesting <laughs> to know what, what, PKD would do with climate change. And if he was around today, what would he be doing about this? But the huge motivation for why they're having a draft and why they're sending people out is that the earth is warming. Yeah. Except it's, it's not well explained. It's somehow a false, it's a false climate change, which, uh, which he explains a couple of times that the, uh, like when Leo goes to the future, the the uh, future men there are like that whole climate change thing was was created by the the prox people. So I, I don't know if it it would really count as a climate change novel in that sense. Mm-hmm. Well, for all intents and purposes, though, materially within the context of the novel, you know, the world is really hot. 
right? So, yeah. <laughs> and, and I think that when thinking about the time period in which it was written, which you guys said 64, right? Yeah, 63, 64. Right. So the first science on global warming and climate change was came out in 1955. So at this point, it's about a decade old. And if he was sort of caught up on all of that, he would have been, you know, pretty well aware of the rate of, you know, heat that was, you know, sort of happening at that at that time. Um, I was also a little bit unclear about the idea of this draft to Mars because it's a little it was a little foggy to me what exactly getting people off planet would do. And it doesn't seem like there's a whole bunch of them. You know, it seems like it's sort of like. If you get picked to go to Mars or the moon or Io or whatever, it seems that you are just very unlucky. And then you're sort of sent there to sort of live out the rest of your life in a little underground bunker and, you know, trying not to get eaten by these weird creatures while you're up yeah, there. Yeah, it's, it's less less of a draft and more of a lottery. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And it, 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 it seems... It's, it's, I think that when you think about the draft to go to... Mars in terms of the themes of the novel, which I think one of the major uh, kind of themes in it is this idea of sobriety and atonement. Um, I think that it works as a thematic thing. It doesn't necessarily make logical sense, but, (laughs) but basically when you, every time that Barney runs into a problem, um, the answer is always to abstain from doing the thing that he's about to do towards the end of the book when he eats a whole shitload of choosy and goes into his million year rock phase. He's told very specifically by Palmer Eldritch, like, dude, you should have chilled. You should have relaxed. There is this kind of idea moving forward in the book that he's a terrible person. And Mars is this sort of symbolic ascetic torment that he's going to put himself through. And by the way, a very Calvinist Christian kind of sense in order to make up for how, shitty of a person he's been so it's almost like mars just exists to both be a place where you can be in purgatory but also as a place where you can see a kind of um a kind of reflection of our own world at this point realistically right where people specifically go there and they have to take drugs and pretend to be perky pat in order to maintain their sanity which i'm not sure how accurate that is to the time in which it was written, but it certainly seems to resonate now, right? Pop in a Percocet and turn it on Netflix, right? <laughs> um, yeah. So I think it all works thematically is what I But I think, I think more what he was going for in that sense was that it was more like the Old West where it was the rules didn't exist. You made up the rules as you went along. So, so them trying to survive and doing the drugs to get out of things was like basically – the old west version of a saloon with whores and everything else and 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 new york city was like the big city and they had rules there but but the rules don't exist when you go to the frontier yeah. so I, I think that that was a big part of it sure and then what you end up with is a group of people who are basically for lack of a better term, mostly spiritually dead inside. So they end up filling that with neo-Christianity or with right. candy. Mm-hmm. And I think that's where he's really trying to say something overall about culture in general and kind of why people turn towards things like narcotics and religion in general. Yeah. Yeah. Um, 
I think the 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 whole draft storyline. I think it's it's really important to just to. I think that's his. You know, that's kind of mirroring his whole thing of having to go to the hovel every day and and his isolation thing is. I think he he just he needed an excuse that where people couldn't get out of of going um, to to the colonies and where they were just kind of forced to be there and and uh but yeah i like what you're saying about how that, that really fits with the the overall theme uh moving into palmer eldridge in his introduction i like the idea that he was at the the prox system in proxima centauri and then crashes on pluto's kind of fun uh golden age sci-fi stuff and for me i i just like little moments like that that kind of bring it in because technically he could have just been anywhere in the solar system and having found the lichen that makes choosy like for example he could have had that be something that he found on the moon but i like that he came from another solar system and uh i I know for me that's just like a fun gee whiz nerdy sci-fi thing but his introduction as a character palmer palmer eldridge you know, I think at first you get this idea that he's just this industrialist and he's gone and, and he's left. And I really like the slow build of how Palmer Eldridge is introduced. That he's just, he's crashed, he's done this thing, but we don't see much of him at first. And once we get the reveal of what he's really become is it, really cool stuff and we'll get there eventually. But uh, I think he obviously is an iconic character. What do you guys think about this? Is I think in many ways one of the the best characters Dick has ever created. Yeah. Palmer Eldridge. Palmer Eldridge. At this point, well, he he pops up like Willy Wonka. <laughs> you know, he he pops up in the middle of a of an illusion with seemingly all the answers, and it, it, that was a great that was a great scene where it's just like. Here, here I, here I am. I know everything and you can do this and you can do that. And you're th- in charge of your entire life. It just seemed so perfect. Well, in, in as far as like kind of a cheesy type of PKD where it almost feels like, you know how we always talk about the difference between PKD movies and PKD books and the, the feeling of a PKD movie yeah. versus a PKD book that there, there is a moment of PKD movie. In, in the idea that Myerson, or was it Bolero, who finds out like, hey, um, yeah, you're going to be convicted of his murders, Bolero. Bolero, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I went ahead and I looked at this newspaper storyline and you're going to kill him. So um, get ready for that. <laughs> and um, I really do like that aspect of the plot. I kind of wish there was more of that, that there was more... Well, that entire sequence of them in the, of, of Leo in the, uh, in his, in sort of his own reality or in Eldritch's reality, you know, from the choosy was a, a brilliant, uh, just brilliant all the way through with the little girl and, and the giant rat and, and the, the, you know, Dr. Smile and all those things. It, it I mean, at that point, uh, Anthony had, had written, us a message that said this this uh this novel is amazing and at that point i was like yeah this novel is perfect at that at that point i i had nothing bad to say about the book at all because that scene is so good yeah my grievances are with it are really minimal 
Yeah, but they come later, right? After, yeah, after that brilliant, brilliant sequence. Yeah. Um, I yeah, and I definitely think it, it starts off strong, and I think the introduction of Palmer Eldridge and all the characters get better introductions than than many of the novels that he's done. As far as he does a good job sure. of creating these characters, for the most part, they some of them kind of drop off later, but he he does do a very good job of introducing all of them. Yeah, it's it's obviously not perfect, but yeah. you know, we talk about fungus from space. Yeah, I was I was going to get into how candy and juicy works. Lichen. Yeah, uh, let's talk about the let's Lichen? talk about the drugs. <laughs> um, yeah, so candy when it gets introduced, there's a part where he says, and this is page twenty three of the vintage edition. He would, of course, chew it with her in concert with her users with users' minds fused became a new unity, or at least that was the experience. A few sessions of candy chewing t- uh, in togetherness, he would know all there was to know about Paya. So, um, yeah, I don't think any real drugs that, I mean, I guess I'm straight edge, so maybe I'm wrong about this, but the idea of the togetherness that their minds fuse, that is a really cool aspect of the candy and then makes it kind of a tribal experience. Or, I don't know, maybe that's my straight edge talking. But what do you, what do you guys think about Candy and how it was introduced and, and explained? I, I loved it, and the specific reason why is because, are, do any of you, have any of you listened to talks that Terrence McKenna has given before? I have. Yeah, that, yeah. I, I mean, I've heard him on uh, Coast to Coast, but... Ter- so Terrence McKenna gave a bunch of talks at Esalen... Um, you can find him on YouTube. Some of them are up to four hours long, and he would just riff on anything. But, of course, Terrence, along with his brother, uh, Dennis, are sort of pioneers in the worlds of hallucinogenics, specifically mushrooms. And he's sort of famous for saying, you know, the problem with an alien invasion is that you don't know when you have one. And his contention was that the mushrooms that we have on this planet right now came to us the same way that candy sort of came via Palmer Eldritch. The idea that it's a fungus from space that has a consciousness and has a motive behind it. I'm not sure, again, I'm not sure when he gave these talks, so I'm not sure if his talks are influencing Dick or Dick's talks are influencing uh, McKenna. But I, when I was reading that, I was like, oh, that's the, that's the panspermia. That's the the lichen from space, right? That has mm-hmm. that has come to this planet to sort of communicate with humans. Because McKenna had taken that even further and believed that the reason why human brains in general evolved, he called it the stoned ape theory. So the idea is that you have people two hundred thousand years ago wandering through, you know, the plains or whatever, and they come upon a gigantic pile of cow shit. And out of that cow shit is growing these little blue mushrooms and they eat the mushrooms and they get really high. And that begins to actually mutate the human brain. So the idea is that we actually have the brains that we have today because of, you know, a fungus from space, the prox system, wherever that is supposed to be the, the idea of a lichen coming from prox specifically to integrate itself into not just human minds, but kind of the human subconscious. Again, like in a Jungian sense, the idea that there is a complete 
there's like a, a field of consciousness in which these sort of archetypes and dream type figures work in. That's where the candy or rather the choosy actually begins to live is very, very, very compelling. And candy, it's sort of like, you know, Pepsi and Coke, right? Or, you know, Pepsi and Diet Pepsi. So candy is more interest is interesting as well because it seems to be a little bit more synthetic. It's more of the earth. So it's more tied towards capitalistic type things. Whereas choosy is a time spanning, uh, a sort of time spanning consciousness expanding hellish nightmare scape. Candy very specifically makes you go into this sort of 1950s, uh, when, when everything was great, everybody had a house, everybody had a car, everybody had sweet bathing suits that you could barely even see. So it's almost like the sort of escapist capitalistic drug versus this kind of anarcho lichen that comes from space <laughs> to just fuck people's shit up. And I like that, uh, that sort of clash between them. It's almost like a sort of materialistic capitalistic society that's being overrun by this malevolent spiritual force that's coming in to sort of usurp that and take it away. Yeah. Does that make sense? Right. And one of the things we, we should mention too, that panspermia is a, is, is a very respected scientific theory. It's not just woo woo. Like it's not, no, it's, no. it's a hundred. It's probably how we're all here, honestly. Yeah. I mean, most scientists believe that, 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 life travels through panspermia. It's like a real scientific thing. Um, and, uh, so there's a, on page 75, there's a quote that, that, um, that goes to what you're saying. And, and it's when, uh, Eldridge is saying, is explaining like where he got choosy from. And he says, I obtained it illegally. The proxers didn't know I took any of it. They use it themselves in religious orgies as our Indians made use of mescal and, um, peyote. peyote. Uh, it is what you wanted to see. It's what you wanted to see me about. And so this is like, you know, where he's really saying like, Hey, he also says some, some really interesting stuff about how, you know, I learned about it when I was there and they didn't really think it was that big a deal. But like, you get this idea that Eldridge was like, Hot damn, <laughs> you know, right, right. <laughs> that you guys think this is just, you know, this religious stuff, but he is really trying to sell the idea that, you know, I, like you said, I don't know if Terrence McKenna was doing his thing before then or not, but it's, it is this idea of like, no, it's, Terrence it's McKenna like Eldridge was mostly in the seventies. Yeah. It's like Eldridge went down to the Amazon and came back with some wacky shit. Right. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, and, mm -hmm. and, um, I really do like how it kind of sets up this panspermia invasion thing. And it is one of the coolest ideas that's in the book in my opinion. And there's, and there's also when you, when you take too much of the choosy, it, it fucks with time. It makes it so that you can become a ghost in the future. Um, which again, this is yet another in instance of real life mimicking Dick. Because I, I had to look this up because I had forgotten the exact dates. But there's a part in the book where when Leo Bolero uh, takes or doesn't take, he's sort of, I think, intravenous. Yeah, it's I.V. Um, he goes into the future and sees this monument, right, that says, you know, here is the, the man who killed Palmer Eldridge, this hero. 
And there are these two, essentially what are described as gray aliens, but they're the evolved forms of human beings that are tasked with defending this particular monument from, I guess, what ends up happening, which is Palmer Eldridge becoming a dog and going and peeing on the monument, right? But they see him as a ghost, which is very, very interesting because in 1984, the CIA uh, was doing its Stargate experiments, right? So you had MK Ultra, you had MK Often, you had all these basically psi, you guys have seen Stranger Things, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it's basically the CIA doing all this stuff where they hook your head up to, you know, wires, and they're they're basically trying to find out how to spy on the Russians, and they came pretty close, right? But there is a particular instance that's been declassified. This is on the CIA's official website. It's now available due to the Freedom of Information Act. But in 1984, they had one of their psychics come in, and they had an envelope, and in that envelope, it said... Um, the surface of Mars a million years ago, right? And the person who had the envelope didn't know what was in it. The psychic didn't know what was in it. But they put the envelope on a table and they tell him to go to the location that's inside that envelope. And while he's in his trance going to wherever this is, he says that he sees these pyramid structures, right? And these tall gray alien leg beings with big heads. And he specifically says that, like, they can see me, but I'm like a ghost to them, um, which I thought was really interesting. And once I read this book, I was like, wait, did did this guy did this guy read Homer Eldritch? And he's <laughs> yeah, <like>, right. <laughs> <laughs> or is it just a matter of, you know, when you are somebody like Dick who has had these mystical experiences and has tapped into um, this sort of undercurrent of Gnosticism and mysticism and a subconscious realm where um, things get really weird and spooky. D- w- you pull things out of this pool when you're writing these sorts of books. And I'm not entirely sure if this is real or not, but it seems to me that like when you get on that level, you can pull things out that you don't, you don't know what they mean. You don't know why you're doing them, but they have temporal significance in a place that is not your particular time. So could have also been that he was predicting the future, which predicting the future would have been predicting a future in which somebody goes to the past. Right. Right. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And I think the time travel of the, of, of the, of the drugs is, you know, or or the experience, I guess I should say is one of the cooler um, aspects of it. Uh, and I know on page 36, there's a part where he first introduces this and he says, by means of Candy, we were transported outside of time and local space. Many of the colonists were yet unbelievers. To them, the layouts were mer- merely symbols of the world, which none of them could any longer experience. But one by one, unbelievers came around. So the idea that the, you know, this, the, it changed their experiences and they were able to accept uh, so much better what it was because of their candy experience. And, but I guess the differences between the candy and the, you know, it's funny because Palmer Eldridge then comes around and says like, Hey, you can, you can have this experience that makes you feel like you're doing this, but I'll give you eternity, right? I'll give you this real thing and it won't ever feel like it ends. And, and, and that's where, 
I don't know. I mean, I think, I think that's where Eldridge takes on a godlike quality because, um, and then that, I guess to Dick, that meant that he was evil, that because he was selling them a false idea of eternity. Is, is that what she, I don't know if you guys think that that's why he thought Eldridge was evil, but that's, I guess, where we can get into is Eldridge evil or not. Right. Well, that's, that's one of the, I think that what he's more concerned with is, uh, the idea that a, a person in general would kind of have the hubris and the audacity to create what should essentially be the realm of God. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's the problem that he has with it. It's not whether the actions that he does are benign, malevolent, whatever. It's the, it's the, it's the thought of human beings becoming like God that I think makes PKD sort of bristle and be like, oh, this is incredibly evil because at the end of the day, you can't, you can't do this. So you, you're you, going to end up torturing people by trapping them in, you know, for being a fucking rock for a million. So years. you're saying it, it's heretical? Is, is that what? Yeah. Is that yeah. the problem with? The, all right. Yeah, I think right. that's PKD's problem with yeah. it. Yeah. No, I, I agree with what Osborne is saying. It's just interesting because Eldritch is offering them the escape that they want. Right. Well, Candy is to an ex- to an extent. It's just temporary and limited. But candy's so restrictive. Yeah, yeah. It's very you limited. You can only go into these dolls. Yeah, and and to the layouts and yeah, mm-hmm. and Choosy is like, <laughs> you <Yeah>. know. <laughs> well, you, yeah, you have the freedom to do whatever you want, but you also have this sort of gargoyle over your shoulder the whole time. Yeah. So it, it's not true freedom because sure. You have this other element. It's kind of like the idea, and I'm wondering if this is kind of an idea mm-hmm. that he's trying to get across. And, and I don't know because, you know, shout out to our boy James Headfield from Metallica who just went back to uh, rehab. But this idea, I know it's weird. How, but, I'm, I'm really curious how we're going to tie this in. But the idea that when you cannot <laughs> escape your addiction, okay, that you have this kind of specter of the addiction that's always with you right Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, look mm -hmm. right and so in a sense is palmer eldridge as part of him being evil this idea that he is this specter that is always with you and that is you know look my favorite horror novel of all time is wet bones which is the entire novel is about this specter of addiction Hmm. as as a horrifying cosmic source that like twists and pulls you at all these different angles. And so in a sense, I would say that three stigmata is, is in that canon where, um, and I was just, I was just joking about Metallica. I just wanted to drop Metallica, but, but, (laughs) but it never, Dick never shows that their lives can be good without candy or choosy because for all (laughs) intents and purposes, everyone's fucking miserable. Yep. Right. Especially on Mars and no one on Earth seems happy either. So, is it really that bad? But does your addiction, and then here's the thing, and I can't speak because to this because I've never been a person that's been seriously addicted to anything other than vegan ice cream. But, <laughs> um, <laughs> but mm. does, does your addiction become like a godlike figure in the back of your mind? And is that, is Palmer Eldridge just as much that? Interesting. Basically, yeah, no, I mean, I love that you said that, because again, I read the novel in a lot of ways as a sort of, um, as an addiction book, right? And right. specifically as a sobriety book, 
Um, and I think that that's, there's a lot of value to that, specifically in the idea that when people are not on Choosy, they're in this Martian hovel in outer space with creatures and methane rocks and everything <laughs> sucks, you know. And uh, freaks out when she gets there. She's like, I can't, I can't do this. I can't be here. This is awful. And in a lot of ways, that sort of seems to parallel the problem that addicts have when they yep. quit doing the thing that they were addicted to. Because at the end of the day, being addicted to stuff, whether it's cigarettes or booze or heroin, is really fun. Um, and the problem is that when you quit it and when you have to sort of like become sober and you have to tend your garden it sometimes feels like you're trying to build a garden on Mars with sand constantly <laughs> going at you and everything seems futile and pointless. But what Dick is saying is that that is still preferable than being under the control of Palmer Eldritch, essentially of right. being part of Palmer Eldritch's fantasy world. Well, and PKD was never like a party drugger, right? <laughs> Druggist. Party drugger, party drugger, uh, party, he wasn't doing it to like get wasted and fucked up. Like a lot of times, like he was trying to either pump out more. Well, that or, I mean, when what? you talk about drugs, you, you whether you use them for what you call productive reasons or or recreational reasons, it all ends up the same way. It all ends up the same way. But what I'm saying is, is I don't think he was. I think he felt. I think he felt like he had to do a lot some of the drugs that he was doing. At least, sure. Yeah, he felt well, and he had, he had results from it. So, well, yeah. yeah, that's how he was able to crank out those books, right? Yeah, yeah, and yeah, and so I think I so I think you know, and I hadn't thought of it that way, David. But when you talk about it as being a sobriety novel, that is something that I hadn't thought of. But it is very clear when you when you step back and take the long view of Three Stigmata. Is the short view is like, oh, it's about drugs and getting fucked up. <laughs> but like the long view is like, look how fucking scary this is. No, it's, it definitely got the, the, the distinction there. So, I mean, I was sober for six years and all of that time felt useful, but also sort of wasted. Like, uh-huh. like these people being on Mars, like, you know, it's just drudgery. Everything feels like drudgery when you're going through sobriety, especially the first year or the the first 30 days or 60 days, you know, that's the worst part. But after a time when you're just marking time of sobriety, it feels like you are on Mars and, and growing that garden. I hadn't looked at it like that, but that garden definitely makes sense now that it, it was, it is just a failure. It, it feels like a failure, even as you're succeeding. Well, it's like when you get to, when, when you're so I'm on, I think I'm on day like 30 or 31. Uh-huh. I wanted to see if I could do a 50 day challenge so nice. I'm over halfway there. And, um, what I realized at a certain point at night, I have two different Davids. I call them day David and night David. Right. right. And day David is very uh, studious and industrious. And he's on the <laughs> ball. Night David is a fucking maniac. Right. right? <laughs> and, and night David uh, he loves to party. He loves to hang out with friends. He loves to say wild, fucked up shit that yeah. makes people mad at him. Um, and then the problem is, is that Day David then has to wake up and pick up all the pieces that Night David uh, did. So basically, what has been <laughs> happening is that pretty much every night, it's it's really weird. At about six thirty, seven o'clock, 
It's like Day David goes to sleep. Okay? Right. And it's almost like Day David has been talking to me all day long. Those thoughts that you have in your head where it's like, oh, I wonder if I should do this. Oh, I wonder if I should do that. Oh, this is a deadline. I have to mop the floor and do the dishes. That voice shuts off. And another voice comes out. It's like, all right, dude, it's time to get fucked up. <laughs> Let's do this thing. And, yeah. the, right? and, the pro- and the problem is, is that when you ignore that voice, Day David is asleep, right? So all you're left with is this demon that is just sitting there like pouting, very much like Barney yeah. Meyerson Meyerson. Uh, and it's just being like, oh, well, what are we going to do? We're going to make a garden, really? We're going to just tend this garden? Why yeah. don't we just have a beer and tend the garden, dude. It'll be really really fun. Um, So maybe this book hit me at that particular point because I am sort of halfway through this challenge that I gave myself, but I was like, I really identified with people on Mars being like, there's no point to anything. Like, what are we going to do for the rest of our lives? Because you start to, well, and and you see it, you're like the rest of my life. I'm, yeah, the, if, if if you were to be sober forever, right? Like, if you were to be sober forever, you'd have this thought: like, I'm just going to be this way forever. <laughs> there's no release. There's no. There's. But the uh, there's, the candy is a very good analog for getting fucked up, yeah. like because you you can totally lose yourself in an alternate world or separate, like you say, your your day David from your your night David. You know, you you take the candy, you're not you anymore. You can do whatever. And then the next day, well, if you're me, you, you do day Larry and night Larry and day Larry, really day Larry doesn't give a shit what night Larry does. So I, I wake up and I want to hear about what I did not and not feel guilty about it, which I don't. Mm-hmm. It, it, yeah. That makes even more sense. I'm glad you're on this show. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we're glad you're here too. Well, but I think I think I think the colonists are incredibly relatable. I reading this book the first time, I was just hit with all these ideas and different kind of ways of thinking about it. Reading it a second time, having a job where I practically fucking live at that office for nine hour, nine to ten hours, sometimes twelve hours a day, looking at fucking spreadsheets, <laughs> I would love either of these drugs <laughs> to come home to right. just a little bit. If I could just microdose some of these throughout the day to not have to sit and think that this is the, like the accumulation of everything I've done, all the, all the shit I did that I was, that I was told I was supposed to do, all the cool shit I've done has still landed me in a fucking office chair in a forgettable gray <laughs> office park. Right. I would gladly take it. And mm-hmm. just the frustrations of the colonists felt so personal and me. realistic. And like, like, yeah. it, like, like, not, nah, it's Sunday, right, guys? I have to go to work tomorrow. And I shut down my, David can tell you this, uh, my girlfriend can tell you this. Sunday nights around four thirty, five o'clock, I become Sunday night Anthony, which is a miserable fuck. Who just, who just, just doesn't want to do anything. Doesn't matter what we're gonna do because tomorrow's Monday and I have to do this shit again just to exist and I'm spending all this time focusing on this thing that really doesn't matter outside of making money to live. So the idea that the colonists are going to take this drug to escape was wholly relatable to me. I read this book and more as a, allegory for escaping how we live our lives 
And think about it this way too. They're drafted. They don't have a choice. Yeah. When they are sent to the moon or sent to Mars, they don't have a say in it. Like you're going and it's your patriotic duty, which doesn't that sound oddly like people who are really into work saying like, well, you have to. Yeah, exactly. Or this is bullshit. Why, yeah. why do I have to go to Mars, dude? I don't want to go to fucking Mars. It's like, well, too bad. Well, You're they say it. too bad or, well, they're paying you. And that's ultimately what should drive you. Some of the right. funnier moments in the book, too, come from the whole, like, why don't you just go to Dr. Smile and he'll, he'll, uh, he'll, he'll say you're crazy and you don't have to go. And, right. You know, um, and those are some of the funniest moments. But before we get into, uh, general review of the book, um, I just, one last thing I want to talk about is the actual writing. So if we <laughs> just get into it for a little bit. Ooh, ooh. I, I have a quote. Ooh. Cause, you know, I rarely, rarely do quotes. Well, yeah, and I have a part two. But that this one. I really like the writing. It's a two paragraphs on page 46 of whatever edition this is. Though he disagreed catching up with her panting, he said, it's important that you're Fran, in essence. In essence, she threw herself down on the sand, lay resting on her elbows, drawing by means of a sharp black rock in savage swipes, which left deep, deeply gouged lines. Almost at once she tossed the rock away and sat around to face the ocean. But the accidents, their pat, she put her hands beneath her breasts, then languidly lifting them, a puzzled expression on her face. These, she said, are Pat's, not mine. Mine are smaller, I remember. That whole section, th- this whole paragraph, these two paragraphs, embody the, the joy and, and the, the sort of, like, untalked about danger of doing drugs. Because, you know, you, you take that black, sharp rock across the entire this entire uh, joyful scene where they're frolicking on the beach and just this dark moment happens to me, that was an, an incredible writing feat just to blend it in. So, so subtly and well like that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, that's great. Um, I like that part too. Uh, and, and I, I don't think, um, I would have pulled it out, but that's really cool that you did. Um, glad you caught it. Um, David, how how did you feel about the actual writing of 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 this book? I liked it a lot because it was very clear, but the entire sort of structure of the plotting felt also very organic. Blake Butler, who's another writer who I really like a lot of his stuff, um, he wrote a book called Three Hundred Million, which is another one that I'll probably never read again. But I really enjoyed reading. <laughs> he had a tweet today that said, "A book is only as good as its digressions." And that resonated with me for Palmer Eldridge, because if you have a machine writing a book, what you're going to end up with is a three-act hero's journey, Joseph Campbell structure. Sure. And what I love about this book is that very much like an acid trip, it goes down rabbit holes and then comes back up for air, right? So it's not just the drug scenes that mimic that. It's the plotting of the book itself. It's the idea that we do follow Emily and Richard to go get their you know, evolution thing, right? It's this little mini story within it. It's the digressions that make it feel organic. And I feel like if an editor had gone in there and been like, we're going to streamline this thing, a lot of that feeling of it being a living document had been lost. 
So I like that element of it a lot. It's very funny. Um, and I, I like that it has a little, it ends with these little codas, these little very poetic flourishes that kind of aren't found in the main body of the text. He, he seems to really enjoy ending it on a, on a poetic note. But I appreciated that too. Well, and I think on a, a behind the scenes level, we have to really appreciate the luck that this didn't end up at Ace. Ah, uh, yeah. <laughs> with, with Don Wolheim as his editor, who edited a lot of his early books and, and, and clearly basically fucked up Eye in the Sky. Um, you know, almost, you know, did irreparable damage to Eye in the Sky. And. Yeah, you, you look at the books that were published outside of Ace, uh, at least up until now, they, they have this more poetic feel to them. And it you goes know, to what PKD was saying. Man about in the High Castle and. That many of the books that he wrote, he wrote specifically for Don Wolheim yeah. to make Don Wolheim happy. And the ones that he didn't, Time Out of Joint, Man in the High Castle, Three Stigmata, or Palmer Eldridge. And, and yeah, they do have a lot of those digressions and, and tangential parts that make them memorable. Right. And, and very specifically, that letter, the one where the, where he refers to that, the editor saying that it's a crazy book. There's another part in that letter, and I didn't quote this in the notes, but I read it when I was researching, is that they basically, in the letter, they were like, we're not sending this to Don. <laughs> They're just like, we're not sending this one to Don. He's just not going to get it. And, uh, I think that's pretty good. Anthony, did you have any feelings on this speci- specifically on the prose of the book? Uh, not specifically on the prose. I-, I think we've covered a lot of the stuff that I really enjoyed about it, and that includes how he's written. And I don't think it would have affected me in the way that it did had it not been as well written as it was. Yeah. So I have a favorite part, and I want Anthony to read, because I think this is some of the best description. Yeah. Um, it's a long part, but this is the introduction of, of when they first actually see the physical embodiment of Palmer Eldridge. From the ship stepped Palmer Eldridge. No one could fail to identify him. Since his crash on Pluto, the homeopapes had printed one pick after another. Of course, the picks were ten years out of date, but this was still the man. Gray and bony, well over six feet tall, with swinging arms and a peculiar rapid gait. In his face, it had a ravaged quality, eaten away. As if Barney conjectured, the fat layer had been consumed, as if Eldritch at some time or other had fed off himself, devoured perhaps with gusto the superfluous portions of his own body. He had enormous steel teeth, these having been installed prior to his trip to Prox by Czech dental surgeons. They were welded to his jaws, were permanent. He would die with them. And his right arm was artificial. Twenty years ago, in a hunting accident on Callisto, he had lost the original. This one, of course, was superior in that it provided a specialized variety of interchangeable hands. At the moment, Eldritch made use of the five-finger humanoid manual extremity, except for its metallic shine, it might have been organic. And he was blind, at least from the standpoint of the natural-born body. But replacements had been made, at the prices which Eldritch could and would pay. That had been done just prior to his prox voyage by Brazilian Oculus. They had done a superb job. The replacements, fitted into the bone sockets, had no pupils, nor did any ball move by muscular action. Instead, a panoramic vision was supplied by a wide-angle lens, a permanent horizontal slot running from edge to edge. The accident to his original eyes had been no accident. It had occurred in Chicago, a deliberate acid-throwing attack by persons unknown. Now, for equally unknown (laughs) reasons. Now, this scene is beautiful prose, but it has world-building... It has theme. It has character building. Character building. 
It has every, I fucking love this scene. I think it, it's, it, I just, I went crazy when I read this part and it's one of my favorite parts of the book. Let me ask uh, you a question. Yeah. If you were Palmer Eldritch, would you use your right hand and turn that shit into like a flashlight? You think he ever does that? <laughs> yeah. Or a chainsaw. 110% yes, I would. Yeah. As, as someone like, that... Oh, it's about that time, and then whoop, whoop, whoop. And you get a, your vagina. Yes, I would. Oh, anyway, sorry, go ahead. Yeah. I just love this part. I just think it's a prime example of... Because a lot of times, I don't like PKD for the writing. I like PKD for the ideas. Sure. And it, so for when I get a moment where I'm like, hot damn, this... this Dude was rocking it in the hovel that day. Yeah, right. Um, and 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 I think a lot of this novel, and especially if you figure in that it's right before a Don <laughs> Wolheim special and Penultimate Truth, yeah. he was just in the fucking zone here, and I just feel really good about it. On that note, let's get into our final thoughts and reviews. Now, this book at the time got totally ignored by the Hugos, but coincidentally was nominated for the nebula which is interesting because the nebula is the fan award and the hugo is the professional award so it is interesting and part of that belief at the time was that if you got a science fiction book club edition you were more likely to get nominated for the nebulas right but the reaction at the time was pretty lukewarm however now this book is one of his five or the five that got chosen for the new American library editions. So it right. is definitely, it's not just us. It's not just the fucking weirdos. Um, this is considered to be one of PKD's best books. That being said, I don't think it's any shock that I'm giving this book five out of five choosy caplets. Um, and, uh, that I consider it to be a masterpiece. I'm going to give it five out of five. Pissy talking psychiatric suitcases. <laughs> Be- for for my only grievance with this book is that I'm not terribly sure Richard Nat and Emily were that needed their own chapters. Like no, I feel like no, they, they were, we could have cut them out. And the evolving the the kind of subplot of of evolving uh, reminded me of the. Uh, the story that really inspired Dick that we covered on like a side episode that yeah. I can't remember the name of. Alas, all thinking. Alas, all yeah. thinking really seemed like a callback to that short story. It really was. Um, other than other than that, I, I for think- the listeners that might not remember that we there is a short story that was one of PKD's favorites when he was a kid in the thirties called Alas, All Thinking by Harry Bates, the guy who wrote the story that became Day the Earth Stood Still, and we did a, a special episode breaking down that short story. So I, I think. Because this book felt so personally close to my own feelings about just my life and where it's at in general, uh, I, I can't not love it. That makes uh, sense. Cool. Osborne? Oh, yes. I would give it uh, definitely five out of five fleshlight hands, dude. <laughs> um, no, I. Um, it's definitely uh, – well, no, I think my favorite PKD book is still Valis, maybe just because it was the first one. But um, it's definitely up there. Um, I love no other book that I've read has been able to do hallucinatory um, prose as well as this and still manage to maintain a sort of clarity and also a clarity of purpose. Right. It's never seems to me that the more surreal or absurd moments of it are there just for the sake of being weird. They all seem to have some kind of connection to it. 
and take real quick ish. I think that the Emily and Richard stuff is just like, I think it's just his version of like a joke, right? Okay. Of there being, of there being this sort of this prox alien intelligence that's moving in and is sort of forcing an evolution on right. people who take it. Um, and then him sort of laughing at this kind of idea that you can take uh, an ex, the fact that the doctor is an ex Nazi doctor, mm. which is kind of time wise, it's very, strange uh, we have that kind of weird anachronism um the fact that you have this jeffrey goebbels sort of mad scientist eugenicist who's able to make your brain big and like and the people turn really gross and uh, like their yeah. head gets they become bubble heads they have scales they and... get this we, these weird scales right um i think that's just him amusing himself being like oh puny humans believing that they can evolve in the way that this you know fungus does but um, I, yeah, the, go ahead. So go ahead. No, no, go ahead. Oh, I was okay. just saying I agree. Uh, <laughs> the, 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 I, I just, I, it's definitely, it's my favorite kind of favorite book where I am, well, I need another 15 years before I read it again. Same. That's for sure. <laughs> uh, Langhorn. All right. So I, I was on five of five for all the way through the, the Leo, uh, stuff, you know, that, that, what I talked about earlier. But then, uh, you know, I got bogged down with some of the, some of that, uh, evolution stuff. Like Leo himself doesn't seem really evolved in any sort of way. And then the last 15 pages just being a menagerie of, of, uh, weird closure and, <laughs> and religious doctrine just, uh, threw me off a little. So I'm, I'm going four and a half. Whoa. Yeah. Four yeah. and a half what? Uh, and you better think uh, of something better than metallic flashlights. Oh, really? I have to think of something. <laughs> yeah. All right. So, uh, what? Uh, 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 chitinous brain pans? I don't know. <laughs> cool. No, I'm in here. <laughs> um, all right. So the last segment of our show, and now that we've got the reviews out of the way, is... Uh-oh. Movie. You're in for it now. Yeah. What? How? No, we won't take that long. It won't take that long. Um... The history of um, film treatments and what we would do if we were given all the money in the world to make a movie. I got so, this one. So before I got we get, it. <laughs> okay. So there is, there was almost um, a film of Three Stigmata twice. In the 60s, believe it or not, uh, John Lennon loved this book so much that he bought the rights to not just Three Stigmata, but also Ubik. And weirdly, because he's not a film producer or whatever, he just liked the book so much, John Lennon bought these two books, Three Stigmata and Ubik. And he actually hired a writer to write a script who was named, his name was Howard Rodman. And he was a TV writer. He wrote for Naked City, Man from Uncle, Six Million Dollar Man, a bunch of shows like that. And so somewhere out there, there's a Howard Rodman script because he did finish a script of Three Stigmata. Um, I don't know who he hired to do Ubik. I'm sure we'll find out when we do our Ubik episode sometime next year. But that was interesting. But then, of course, it fizzled, and John Lennon lost the rights when he got shot, um, basically. (laughs) (laughs) uh, That'll happen. Sorry, uh, Eddie Beatles fans out there. Um, But he lost the rights, obviously, and when it reverted back to Dick's family... There was a time period where Richard Linkletter had an option, and he mm-hmm. owned both of the drug books, 
Scanner Darkly and Three Stigmata, and he developed both, but decided that Scanner Darkly was going to be a little bit easier to do for the budget. So, for a little while, Richard Linkletter was going to do a rotoscope. Yeah, doesn't he also have a script of them? Yeah, the Linkletter script was finished and completed for both Scanner Darkly and Three Stigmata. And he was going to do both of them rotoscope but the thought is but this is just conjecture because nobody knows for sure but that his plan was to do the trips in rotoscope and then film the rest live action and standard like Mm. film style uh so richard linkletter i don't know if he still owns the rights but he at one time had the option and i know that isa hackett dick has said that she has outlined before the four priorities for her and she's only done one of the four priorities which was man in the high castle and she wanted to do ubic three stigmata and i oh, i can't remember what, oh skinner skin dark oh flow, yeah flow my tears yes so those are the ones that she wants to do that those are her priorities she apparently doesn't realize that she needs to hire us to do vulcan's hammer but <laughs> she could that one's it. so easy that's why we want to do it right it's not, and because for some weird reason, people don't like that book. But uh, anyways, so, all right. If you guys were, I don't know who wants to go. Oh, I'll Mary, go. I'll go. Wants to, I'll go. You want to go? Yeah. The, uh, the, for me, the story pretty much stays the same. But the big thing is I would have Ralph Bakshi direct it. So there would be rotoscope. There would be all kinds of different animation techniques. There would be live action. There would be all those things. He would... He would absolutely nail the hallucinatory parts of what the is, book. What has he done? Lord of the Rings. Lord of cool the... World. Oh, okay. Um, Fritz the Cat. Gotcha. Uh, a bunch of, like, early... Uh, he did Wizards, American Pop. Uh, he did a, a bunch of stuff in the late 70s and early 80s. Uh, animator. And he... he but he did... He uh, His Mighty Mouse got kicked off the air. In the late eighties for having too many drug references. <laughs> so he's that kind of director. Uh, he's I retired now, but, <laughs> but, uh, he would do an amazing job of, of turning this story into a movie. Uh, I can go next probably. I, I'm not really sure. Um, director wise, I just had this thought that for me, it would have to be a TV series, right? It would have to be seasons. Because I think conceptually Three Stigmata is very interesting. And -hmm. I think that if you actually, you take the core plot of it and you add on more characters with the conceit that there's now this sort of alien drug that is sort of able to manipulate people and have them go back into the past and try to fix things that they can't fix. I think that that opens up a lot. Oh, you could could almost have like a, like a, 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 a story of the week, like a different person. Mm-hmm. Doing their yeah with an their, overall arc. their story oh yeah. right 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 yeah with 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 an overall kind of arc the overall yeah. arc of course being that there would probably be the main characters of like Leo Bolero and Barney and Palmer Eldridge in there but there would also be these sort of tangential stories of people whether they're colonists I mean you could either you can expand it out like what happens when Choosy as it wants to do eventually makes it to Terra. Right. And how, how does that influence people? And it, you could have this whole kind of psychedelic apocalypse show, right? Wow. Where people are all yeah. in the grips of this kind of thing. And nobody knows 
what reality is and what reality isn't. Yeah. It could be a, a mind fucker. Well, I can't really top that, so I'm just going to say But I would like Cody to write an episode of that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, I'd like all of us to write an episode of that. I think uh, I would be okay with Richard Linkletter doing it, but he wouldn't be my first choice. I would love to see, with a budget, um, what's the guy's name who directed Mandy? The Oh, uh, Panos Cosmatos? Yeah, yeah, I would love to see that guy. Um, maybe he could direct the pilot of the TV show too. I'd love to see that guy get a visual flair for, for the world. And as far as I was trying to think about who would, who could play Palmer Eldridge. And I would like to see possibly two actors. Tim Robbins. Oh, that's interesting. I don't know if he's diabolical enough for. You know who could play Palmer Eldridge? Guy Pierce, Michael Shannon. Guy Pierce. Actually, Michael, Michael Shannon's Shannon. not a bad. Michael, Michael Shannon, Shannon would be good. Yeah, yeah I have to agree. <laughs> yeah, actually, Michael Shannon would be a pretty killer. Palmer Eldridge, he'd be pretty fucking scary in that role. Yep. Um, but yeah, and as far as, uh, but I would definitely do. I think the TV yeah, show idea is good too. That's, yeah, because you could really expand the the concepts and. But if you made the art, the arc of the first season be the the book, and then kind of no, I I I think you would go slower, right? You would basically do what's happening on the planet and sort of bring up Palmer Eldritch through the uh, through throughout the first season, and but still everyone's doing choosy or or doing uh, candy instead of choosy, and then choosy or. Palmer Eldridge show up at uh, on the last the episode finale. of season one and sort right. of change everything. Right, right. I I uh, I agree with that, and it would make for maybe more compelling television, especially people who haven't read the books, because you wouldn't exactly know what was going on. Yeah, kind of like the OA, right, where you're just like everything's fucking weird, and we're not really <laughs> sure what's happening. They're chewing this thing. So yeah, end of season one, Palmer Eldridge shows up. End of season two. Palmer Eldritch is dead, and beginning of season three or end of season two, the Proxers show up, right? right. The actual aliens. Yeah, there's an actual invasion. Yeah, yeah, to coincide with the you know the under uh, uh, invasion of the of the drug itself. Yeah, yeah. Well, there you have it, Electric Sheep Productions. You know who to call. <laughs> you got your writing room right here. Um, <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I definitely think that this story needs an adaptation of some kind. Um, would be really cool. So, our next episode... Oh, well, before that, uh, thank you, David, for, for joining us. You really definitely did add uh, a lot to this that we wouldn't have brought on our own, and I mm-hmm. hope you had fun talking Three Stigmata. Um, glad we uh, could have you be a part of this episode, because we definitely feel this book is is so important and deserves more voices. Yeah, I'm a little hot for you right now. I got to say. <laughs> cool, man. Cool. Yeah, no, thanks so much for having me, guys. Like, this is a lot of fun. And uh, I appreciate uh, the invite, and I had a really, really great time. All right, so the next uh, book we're reading for the podcast? Dr. Blood Money is a post-nuclear Holocaust masterpiece filled with a host of Dick's most memorable characters. Hoppy Harrington, a deformed mutant with telekinetic powers, Walt Dangerfield, a selfless disc jockey stranded in a satellite circling the globe. Dr. Bluthgeld, the megalomaniacal physicist largely responsible for the decimated state of the world. 
and Stuart McConchie and Bonnie Keller, two unremarkable people bent on the survival of goodness in a world devastated by evil. Epic and alluring, this brilliant novel is a mesmerizing depiction of Dick's undying hope in humanity. Dr. Wow. Blood Money. All right, well, um, that's awesome. I can't wait for Dr. Blood Money. I uh, got to get on that one soon. Yeah, so uh, keep it paranoid, everybody. And, yeah. Later. Paranoid. Stay paranoid. Paranoid.